everybody. I'm Adam Hergenrother. This is Business Meets Spirituality. We believe in personal growth through business success. Today, I am joined by uh, Melissa Bernstein, who is the co-founder of the toy company Melissa and Duck. And we have a wonderful conversation, right, Hallie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know that Hallie didn't. I know Hallie didn't get a chance to talk a whole bunch about this because we were just. She, I mean, she I listened. It was. It was. Yeah. Just, I was enthralled the entire conversation. Yeah, it was. It was really great. So if you don't know who um, Melissa Bernstein is, or if you haven't really purchased a toy from them, which I think most people have. Even I, I have. Yeah, no, it's, I know. I knew who that. I knew immediately what that company was. Yeah, <laughs> even though I don't have any kids. Oh, I love that. Um, well, Melissa Bernstein, along with her husband Doug, is the co-founder of the toy company Melissa and Doug, which has created over five thousand children's products and sold billions of dollars of toys since its inception. Raised by educators, Melissa and Doug started their business in their garage, sounds like Apple, in 1988, and they've been on a mission ever since to provide open-ended, inventive, non-technological-driven playthings for young children. Throughout Melissa's remarkable career, she kept secret her lifelong battle with severe depression and anxiety. She reveals her struggles in her book, Lifelines, which she wrote to help others who are also suffering. Melissa's book, uh, heralds the launch of lifelines.com, an online ecosystem she and Doug are underwriting to support these seeking support, guidance, and community on their mental health journeys. Melissa lives in Connecticut with Doug and their six children. And what I think you're going to really enjoy about this is Melissa opens up. We talk about everything in this interview and really kind of what the meaning of life, what, you know, of really why opening up now and what is it like to, how much energy it takes to really just live the secret, which I think so many of us do of trying to not be authentic to ourselves and what that means. And then also um, you brought up some good questions too, even before the interview of just, well, how did she cope with it? And it's really fascinating in the interview, she actually talks about how she still needs to cope with it every day and what her active practice is to make sure that she doesn't get Velcroed again to this disease that she has. And so um, I know that you're going to really enjoy this show that Hallie and I did too as well. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Where I'd love to start is I have um, a big um, affiliation with nature and I know you do as well too. So I want to start with this verse and I'd love for you to kind of unpack this a little bit because I know in your book um, you talk about how nature is is one of your um, most profound things that has helped you so much in your life. Um, And you actually start by going out and collecting treasures in nature. I'm just going to read a verse or two in in nature and I'd love for for you to comment on as well too. Um, Verse, and this is on page 204 of your book, simply opening your eyes to nature's vibrant mystery gives us reason to stop doing and embrace what's here to see. The second one I want to read too, because I want to get two of them in here before you jump in. Nature doesn't have the need to be anything else than what it is. A tree remains a tree and never seeks to be a rose since the cosmos just accepts what is with no intent to pose. That's one of my very favorite verses. The second one you read that I say all the time. And, you know, I think the reason, Adam, that I love nature more than anything is because it's teaching me the lessons that I need so desperately to learn, which is to be content just being and not need anything. And when I say, you know, a tree remains a tree and never seeks to be a rose for the cosmos just accepts what is with no intent to pose. I'm saying that to myself. I'm looking at the tree and I'm saying, look at you, like 
you're fine whether your leaves are falling, whether you're rotting, like you're not complaining and you're not trying to compare yourself to something else. You're not, you know, wishing things were different and I want to be that way. So I go in nature to teach me that lesson again and again and again. I love that. What are some of the favorite things that you have collected along your, along your journey? Uh, I think collecting, I can truly be on a beach and no joke. If I didn't have to be somewhere like, you know, to do something with my kids or a meal, eight hours would pass. And I would think that time stopped. That is how much I enjoy collecting. And it, for me, it's the beach that really does something profound to me. And it, it's really that when I collect, I'm only focused on finding that treasure and I am truly in the moment in my heart because I know that like these beautiful treasures are lying shrouded in a lot of just ugly stuff. But if you are aware and in intent on uncovering them, they will manifest. So it's like such a metaphor to life. And I feel like when I find something that is just extraordinary, that has emerged from nature, I feel like I've been granted this really powerful gift. I love that. It's very beautifully uh, said. One of the things I think with nature too, is they allow us, they helps ground us a lot more. And you talked about how a tree can just be a tree, like an apple or like a, like an apple tree produces apples and it doesn't judge who gets the apples. It doesn't kind of hoard them yeah. for itself. It doesn't say this one wasn't the right color. What do you think, or, or what do you think the cause of that suffering that is so um, alive in many human beings now that causes them to not be just present in the moment? It's resisting, you know, what they're feeling. And I think it starts, you know, it doesn't start when we're born because when we're born, we express everything, right? When we're sad, we cry. When we're happy, we laugh. And we truly embrace the full spectrum of emotion. But I think very early on, society starts to tell us that it's not okay to show that dark side of the emotional spectrum. And little by little, we begin to feel we can't show ourselves in despair. We can't show ourselves jealous. We can't show ourselves angry. You know, we're told don't hit and we're not told why don't hit. We're, we're not told how to, how to understand those feelings. We're told, you know, dry your tears, buck up, be strong. Like all the messages we're given basically tell us don't feel. So we begin to view, view feeling as something to avoid at all costs. And I think we repress those deep, dark feelings, even feelings about our mortality or about what's going to happen to us one day when we're not here. Like those are very basic questions that I believe all young children even ponder. But when others in our lives are very unsettled about us asking them and, and say, don't, don't think about those things. That's not happening to you. I mean, that's what, what, I, you know, I always heard you learn like, oh my gosh, that's a bad thing. I can't think about death. And again, it all becomes submerged, repressed, denied, disassociated from, and we adopt a facade to effectively get through life. Yeah. You have two dogs, six kids, a wonderful business. And so on paper, you have just about every single thing that people are striving for. Yet yep. at the same time in your, in your book, and you've really come out and described that since a really early age, you've had this 
deep, dark depression and anxiety that has kind of existed in your life. So kind of two questions I'd love to ask you for this. Number one is, I think it's remarkable how you talk about in your book that at age five or six, you were writing these poems for one, because I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And I'm just thinking like, man, if they wrote poems like that, for one, it's just amazing. You actually wrote the poem themselves. So I'm curious as to where the inspiration came from to write these poems that have now become a staple or mantras in your life, if you will. Um, And then number two, how did you start to transition out of hiding the darkness and bringing that into the light and now sharing your story for where you are today? Mm, that's, a, that's Those are great questions. Oh my gosh, I love them. So, you know, the verses flowed out of me innately. They truly appeared in my head fully formed and I just basically wrote them down. And the reason I believe that that happened is because the feelings in me were so dark and so chaotic and so unable to be controlled or answered that those verses became my only method of creating order within the chaos that reigned within. And they were the only thing that brought me a sense of okayness in a world that stigmatized me, that didn't accept me. And that in a, in a body that I didn't accept. So I think when you are being suffocated by a demon that is telling you life is futile and you should end your life, that was the only thing I could cling on to find hope. And, and it was my lifeline, those verses. So they channeled out of me from the time I was three and that I remember. And I mean, even at five, you know, to, to live in my head was, I wrote a verse, you know, please hinder the noise. I've lost track of the joys. I can't feel anymore with this deafening roar. I can't see anymore with this staggering light. I can't breathe anymore with this stifling fright. Wow. Did anybody else read those during these times where you're sharing them with anybody or were these private? I never shared a one. And that is the crazy thing about society. And I think the message we're given, I somehow knew very early on that I would be rejected, stigmatized, and looked at in horror if I ever shared them because they were all really, really dark. And and there was a slight bit of hope in each one, but you know, another is like the burden of myself is almost more than I can bear. Like these were deep at age five, six, seven. Yes, they were. And because I was terrified at people thinking I was weirder than I already knew they did. I hid them away. And when I finally unshrouded them at middle age, there were about 3,500 of them that had never seen the light. Wow. And you talk in your book about how, as you were growing up, you use school, physicality, kind of sports, right? As this escape. Is that how you would refer to it as? Is you, you have your kind of poems, but then you used a, almost a way of having certainty to be able to go get good grades so that you wouldn't, so nobody would pay attention to the darker side of you. Is that how I'm viewing that? I mean, it unfortunately became a very unhealthy coping mechanism because I couldn't handle the thoughts that raged through me and no one could give me the answer. I mean, my, my questions really were, why am I here? Right. What is the meaning of life if we're ultimately all going to die? And what am I meant to do during my brief time here? And I truly, these questions like started at as young as I can remember. And because I couldn't get the answer, 
I truly felt like life was futile and I really should end it all. But because I had this little bit of hope in me and I wanted to know the answer to my questions because my curiosity is the seed of all my creativity. I still hung on hoping that one day someone would give me the answer. But the only way I could cope effectively was two, two channels. One was whenever I could retreating into my imagination where I did have utter control over everything in that boundless realm of, you know, white space and could create whatever I imagined. And that was utter bliss. But unfortunately I couldn't be up there as much as I wanted. And I had to be, you know, here on earth. And then what I ended up doing is clinging to validation through perfection in everything, perfection in my looks, my behavior and my performance. And of course I wasn't ultimately able to attain that in either or in any three and any of those three categories. And, and it felt worthless when I failed in all three. Did you actually ask those questions out loud when you were a young child to people? What was the response when you kind of posed those? And is that what drove you to more of the coping mechanisms because people asked you to pretend like those questions didn't exist? You know, it's funny. I don't, I remember asking them to myself incessantly. And I think I must have let it out somehow because I had such a strong sense my entire life. I could never show even a little inkling of it to anyone. So my guess is that I must have let some of it out and received the look. And I, I, the few times I did share it in recollection, people just, and I didn't even share that just looked at me like, what, you know, you, you, wow, you are messed up. Like you need to get it together. And I think this sense that I was broken and something was very, very off in me. And, you know, the other kind of difference about me that is a shame is I wanted more than anything to fit in. Like I never accepted this deep, dark, weird, introverted, creative person. I was, I I couldn't stand who I was. And even in ninth grade, when we received these things called superlatives, which are given for like people exemplifying certain qualities. I wanted one that related to looks more than anything. And this is me. Like I'm so authentic. I don't even wear makeup today, but all I wanted was one that was like best looking, best dress, best smile, prettiest eyes. And I ended up getting most musical, which I was because I write songs like I write music, like in my head. And I was so angry that the whole school voted and voted me most musical that when I received my yearbook, the end of that year, I ripped out the page and like shredded it and threw it in the trash. And I, that's how in denial I was like, who would I want to be considered most musical at a really creative artsy school? Like that was such an honor. Yet I was so in denial of being creative that I wanted a, a one that a superficial one based on looks. I can't even believe that to this day. Well, your soul is radiating today. So thank you for sharing it. <laughs> I love your passion. Thanks. It's beautiful. Let me ask you this question. So I think a lot of people uh, in their lives have different coping mechanisms, right? And for you, did that transfer from you in looks or in sports, did that transition into business or was business the outlet that allowed you to be very creative in it? Was it a coping to start or which one came first? 
Oh, that's a great question. So business actually ended up being my salvation and just by accident, because, you know, throughout my life, I did create as a method of salvation, but it never brought me salvation because all my creations stayed in the dark. So, you know, I kind of, when I think about my creativity, I think of it as a water faucet and one side of it was darkness and one side of it was light. And through the first like 23 years of my life, it was only darkness. And I channeled this deep despair into this darkness that came pouring out of me. But of course it was so dark and, and stigmatizing that I never shared it. And I almost in those days felt I was a victim of the darkness. Like I was just like channel through me, but I'm not going to find any salvation because it's like, it's ugly. Um, but then, you know, Doug and I decided to uh, form a, a business even before we had kids, we, we formed a business out of wedlock and uh, <laughs> which is, he always says, which is so cute. Um, but you know, by accident, I realized that I could make toys like, like water. Like I had ideas like that just came into my head, you know, tens at a time. And when I saw that I could take that very same darkness, right. That it only channeled into dark, despairing stuff, turn off the dark faucet, turn on the light faucet and channel that very same despair into light and toys, no less that could touch a child and bring them joy through unleashing their imagination. It was truly like I could breathe for the very first time. Touching them, you have when you said it was an accident that it came through there, was that more of you surrendering to life to allow your heartbeat to match nature's heartbeat in alignment with um, kind of mm. nature in itself? And that was just becoming when you say it's an accident for our listeners, like, is that something that just like you, you had you ever used or made toys before and just kind of came through and all of a sudden it just was the inspiration, the creativity, enthusiasm, these high states was just there for you to just grab on and just started becoming that. And without you having to think through it, it was just, it just started to be the inspiration in itself. Oh, that's a great question. Wow. You're asking so many good questions. So yes, I think I wasn't in touch with what made my soul sing. In fact, I didn't even use the word creative to explain myself until about a year ago. Hmm. Like I never thought really? I was creative. Oh, that's great. Never. It was the last adjective I would have ever used to describe myself because it wasn't accepted by society. In those days, like being a creative was you are weird. Like, and I, and I would mutter to like, when I'm writing a verse, I recite it to myself. And sometimes I don't even realize I'm muttering. Like I'm, I'm either saying one as a mantra to keep me alive yeah. or I'm muttering a new one that I just wrote. Cause I write like eight or 10 a day. And I tend to mutter and people look at me like if I don't realize it, they look at me like I'm like, I'm a crazy person. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's what I was trying to hide from the world. And when I saw, yeah, I mean, I never took a design course and I never thought about making anything other than channeling just what came innately through me songs and verses. When I just by accident, we were like, we had this idea for a puzzle and all of a sudden I basically saw, you know, 200 puzzles in my head, exactly how I wanted the line to, to, to flow over the next 10 years. Um, it was like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. And only a few times in our 30 years, I sometimes said to Doug, I was like, 
I honestly don't know how I do this. Like it's so natural for me. It's like breathing. And I didn't realize at the time that it's a blur, right? Mm -hmm. I never thought that my blessing is also my curse. So it didn't connect until much later in my life that, yeah, I can create at whim and, you know, fill that white canvas with boundless ideas but the cost of that is pretty deep as well. It's living, you know, a life really afflicted with overexcitabilities and hypersensitivity so great that it makes living in the world very challenging at times. Was Doug aware of your depression and anxiety when you were going through this? You know, he was only as aware of it as I was, which was not aware. And I think the only reason I'm here is because I forced myself not to allow it to submerge me because it truly was a demon in my head saying, kill yourself, like for 20 plus years. And I think if I heeded its request, you know, I wouldn't be here. And I was really close to, to heeding it many, at many points. And, you know, I have that, I think those of us who survive have that innate fight in us. And even when the bottle of pills was right here, I was like, but then I won't know why, like I will never have the answer to my questions. And that intellectual hypersensitivity, which allows me to ponder those higher realities in the first place is also what kept me alive because I needed to know the answer. And I think I I was like, if I, if I kill myself, I won't know the answer. And that would be really tragic. Yes, it would. If you, as you started achieving kind of external success, was there a point within your business journey that you realized before we started the show, you kind of mentioning that even, you know, the masters, a lot of books talk about the fact that you, once you kind of get everything you thought you needed, then you kind of orient your search differently. Instead of going outwardly, you start going inwardly to realize what you're looking for is already inside. Was there a point in your life that you reoriented your life to start trying to, I don't know, maybe in your book you reflected to as bringing the, the darkness into the light or was it just there was an orientation piece of like, okay, I made it externally. Everything on paper looks great, but man, like there's this deep feeling in there. What was that orientation point for your life and, and when when did that switch if it did? Yes, it did in a big way. And I think that's why now I know they call it midlife crisis because I could effectively repress, deny, and disassociate from everything throughout most of my early years. And I did. I had on the surface a really incredible life and I was enjoying it. I mean, I, you know, we have six children. We were like enjoying the material successes. We were doing great things. We were creating beautiful toys that like touch kids. So there was no doubt that it was um, a lot of fun. But there was something, and I call it the the cry of my own soul to be seen authentically, that was getting louder and louder and louder. And as it started growing, I even started to see my creativity in making toys as sort of a sham. Because again, I'm an existential nihilist in many senses, like, what? why are we doing this? It's all absurd. And I was thinking like, here's this dark churning introverted creative whose works are spawned from so much despair. And yet I'm hiding behind this light, bright, shiny toy. And like this person who's crying inwardly to be seen isn't no one knows. And it was like, I was living in a sense, a lie. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't living a lie. I was, I was always myself in the self I knew, but I was living 
I wasn't, I had never accepted myself in who I was. And finally, you know, I say pain plus resistance equals suffering. So I was in this deep internal pain. I had resisted everything I was and everything I felt my whole life to survive. And I was suffering to such a degree right below the exterior that one day it just truly became too great. You know, the exhaustion from when you resist everything you are and everything you feel and try to put on a shiny face, it's utterly exhausting. And I think that one last straw happened and I pretty much one day, like, and I say, I, you know, I like looked up to the heavens, not, not that it was in a religious sense, but yeah. just in a, like, I give up, yes. like, I can't do this alone. And that was, and, and I wrote a couple verses that day that were really powerful to me. And, um, one of them was, you know, there comes a point in life when we've a vital choice to make for the future is dependent on which Avenue we take either traveling the channel of resistance and repression or advancing toward the soul intent on hearing its confession. And it was that day that I wrote a few verses. Another was, you know, we alone possess the power to live life forevermore, brokenhearted in a cell or walk right through the open door. And it was sort of these, these, my, my, my inner self was saying like, the door's open, Melissa, it's been open your whole life. You've just been terrified of walking out and you can either continue to resist and repress, or you can finally listen to your soul and make that inward journey. And that was when I realized I would never find peace or fulfillment until I stopped racing outside myself for, you know, success. And, and it wasn't even success for me. It was a legacy through creating. I believed that the more toys I created and the more children I created and the more I churned that darkness into light, it would mean I'd be immortal. And I began to realize that, you know, I had 10,000 toys and I didn't feel any less immortal. And, um, and I needed to finally go inward and accept myself in totality. So I had to admit I was imperfect for the very first time in my life. And I needed help because I knew that journey was going to be so dark and so terrifying because at its core is the existential nihilism that I was born with that I needed a partner. And, um, so I had to, you know, enlist a trained professional to help me and begin the most arduous uh, work of my life, which has been to accept myself for who I am. Yeah, that's wonderful. One of the, you know, our, our astro body, if you will, talks to us differently, right? It's like when we were breaking arm, you, the, your, the pain kind of shoots through you and tells you there's something wrong with, you know, with your arm. The astro body she talks more about, like you talked in your, in your story here, you're just also mentioning that how they become louder and louder and louder. It's mm -hmm. almost as if, if you're not paying attention to the authentic you, life or your astral body or energy, whatever you want to refer to it as starts to speak up louder and louder and louder so that you start paying attention to it to actually do the work and involve spiritually while you're here to be able to actually put the work in there. When you started, um, when you first started seeing that awareness, and I also, I also want to get to the mind too, because I think you, you refer to the, the, the demon in there that's referring to it. Are you referring more to that voice inside your head? That's just that you're paying attention to. Is that what that is for you? Yeah, it was a voice. I mean, I always felt, I mean, I write about it as a demon. To me, it was, it was always this 
I, you know, and I have an image of it. It was a person that, or a a being, a force that lived in me that wanted to take me down. And I'm not sure where it came from and what it was, but it wanted to punish me for being who I was. And it wanted to deny me any form of pleasure and basically kill me very, very slowly. If not, if I wasn't going to take my life right then and there, it was going to kill me slowly. Does that voice still show up? It, it does. If I allow it. Yes. I mean, I think it will always be there. You know, I, um, I have a mental illness and I've chosen to, uh, tackle it holistically. So I, you know, if I don't engage in my practice every single day, I can fall into that hearing that voice very loudly. So, yeah. What is your practice? I mean, my practice is what we call like our lifelines. And for me, it's become, it started with my lifelines being my creativity and my verses, which that's why the book's called lifelines. Cause they are my life lines of verse that really are the reason I'm still here. Um, and, and that's part of my practice. Um, but it, it involves three pillars, I guess you'd call it three, three tech poles. One is self-care because the demon throughout my life told me I can't care about myself. And that's why I suffered with disordered eating my whole life and really starved myself for many years. Um, so that's, it's simple things for most people, but not for me, you know, like eating, like sleeping. I go into a manic phase when I'm creating and I could easily not sleep for a week because when that creativity is flowing through me, like I just want to write it down and to sleep is really hard for me. I don't want to. And that's what it is. I'm like, no, I have ideas. Um, and so that's the the self-care. Then the middle section is like the tools and the skills that I've learned to help keep me, I call it safe insane. And those are things like going to a therapist, um, their mantras, their mindfulness, which means like trying to stay here in everything I do. It's a whole host of it's compassion toward myself. It's not berating myself and getting in my head. So that's the middle. And then the, the, the best part is the third, which is passions and play. And that is the beautiful things I engage in that keep me out of my head, which is a bad, bad place, yeah. a prison and, and keep me in my heart. And that would be walks in nature every single day, writing my verses, playing with my pets, drinking tea, engaging with others who I feel accept me for who I am. You know, that's so for me, I, I, I literally have to metaphorically think about it as this backpack I put on every day and I must engage in my practice, especially when I'm feeling good mm. because a practice is designed to support you when you go below the line. And if I don't make it a daily intentioned, deliberate, practice, then what happens is those days I don't want to get out of bed because by the way, I have, I'm I'm a deep, dark, despairing creative that those are the days that I need to just like by routine say, okay, what do you, what did you do yesterday when it was a good day? You took off the backpack, you opened it up. And today, because you're really having a hard time, you're gonna have to say, what else is in this bag of tricks? Like, what else can I pull out of here to, to help me even more today? I think, um, 
you know, not everybody is at the same level of you are with, with depression, despair for, um, for what you have, but everyone still suffers from listening to that voice and, and, and the work that we've done and listening to yeah. people, they, they listen to that and they get so caught up in there. So where would you suggest people start to start to have that? To me, it sounds like you've, you've, you've really done a phenomenal job of separating yourself from there and having a proactive practice that keeps you from engaging with that because it's not the thoughts themselves that actually cause damage. It's putting mm-hmm. all of our consciousness on the thought that almost electrifies the thought to be able to take its hold. So how do you start how, if your people are listening going, wow, this is awesome. And I have those thoughts too. And, and at different degrees, right? How, where do people start so that they can actually start having that separation to see where it is? I love that. And by the way, that is the journey I took that we have free on our ecosystem. Awesome. That journey to stop here, stop my head and live in my heart. I viewed it metaphorically as step on out of the head, move on into the heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And that has become my life practice and my journey. So, you know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. So it starts with that. I think when we realize that life isn't perfect, life isn't supposed to be happy all the time, and that we will all go through undulating oceans of highs and lows, ebbs and flows, ups and downs. And by the way, that took me a lifetime to understand. Like I believed in the American dream and the pursuit of happiness that when you achieve it all, you're happy all the time. And like life is just right. Roses and and meadows and butterflies. And when it wasn't, that was the biggest disappointment. It was like, wait a second. Not that I didn't have moments of that, but it wasn't like every day was that way. And, and I just wanted more, the more I had, the more I wanted. And I was like, wait a second, when does this stop? And if you're racing outside yourself, it never stops. I can tell you that we have everything we could ever want and more, and it doesn't stop. You still want more because you're not filling your well from within. So, um, so how do you do it? Um, I mean, you know, I did it through the five letters of the word space. And that became my own, my own journey and my own acronym, because what I was seeking my whole life. And I would say it when I was a little child, I'd say, I just want space and space meant to untether from my head and create space between my head and my heart, because I knew my heart was pure and just wanted to live free and, and create, you know, without anyone telling it how to create or what to create, but my head wouldn't allow it to my head kept like, was like the taskmaster and the prison guard saying, you are not going to create how you want because that's too indulgent. And that would be, that would be kind to yourself, which I can't allow. So creating space involves first S stopping. And that is the hardest thing to do when you're racing outside yourself. It's having the courage to just stop and breathe and be okay right here, right now. It's then I'm doing this really quick. It's then having the ability to perceive maybe for the first time what you're feeling, because if you're like myself and disassociated from all feeling except for great, perfect. (laughs) Like, I didn't even know what it meant. How do you feel sadness? How do you feel shame? What does jealousy feel like? I had no idea. So perceiving feelings was entirely new to me. And you can't accept yourself until you 
are able to even perceive what it means to feel the full spectrum of emotion. Then A, if you ask me one thing that we need to do more than ever, A is in my uh, my tool skills part of my backpack every single day because it's the thing I have the hardest time doing. It's allowing exactly what you're feeling. And I have this trouble and we all do. Once we stop, once we perceive what we're feeling, guess what we do? We judge ourselves for feeling the way we feel. And we go into that negative mind story like, what's wrong with you? Why are you feeling that way? And so many people write me, they're like, Melissa, I have so many blessings in my life. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I don't know why I feel this way. I should be happy. That right there is the judgmental awareness. Like saying you aren't able or shouldn't feel the way you're feeling is denying who you are. When you deny who you are, you can't help but be depressed and go into a form of depression. So allowing what I'm feeling, no matter what it is, if it's hate towards someone, if it's jealousy, if it's anger, the allowance was the hardest thing for me. And once I was able to allow those feelings, then I can go to see, which is comprehend why we're feeling that way. Because what happens is when we feel a certain way, let's say we feel jealousy towards someone, it's always because of something that happened in childhood that we didn't effectively process and became a trigger throughout the rest of our lives. So in C, you start to comprehend why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And then E is like, it all comes together. And you finally, once you understand it all, embrace yourself in totality for feeling exactly what you're feeling, being who you are. And only when you embrace yourself and offer yourself compassion, can you offer others the same. Yeah, that's wonderful. When you speak of allowing, is that uh, also kind of referring to as just accepting the moment that you're in? And then and your experience and your journey, when the more you allow or the more you accept or surrender to life, do you find that you're actually able to move through the emotion faster? And then there seems to be almost a gift on the other side of allowing it to work its way through you? Yes. I always say allow or accept. Absolutely. It's both. Yes. It's crazy when you allow it and you don't resist it, repress it, deny it. Ultimately, it literally dissipates as quickly as just a, a smell wafting by. And I'm always in awe of how like I could repress emotions for 10 years and they eat away at me from the inside out and I can allow it and it's gone in seconds. It's the most difficult, easiest thing to do. <laughs> I love, there's a saying, I, I say it often, it's called an ignored guest quickly leaves. And Yorkshire, one of the masters said that, an ignored guest quickly leaves. And it's almost whether that's an emotion or a thought. If yes. Part of people though, and I love how you, you said this so eloquently, is that when you allow or accept, that's one of the first modalities, it actually allows you to experience life instead of experience your mind like pretending or narrating what life is supposed to be like. You actually get the direct experience. It's like you can't describe an orange to somebody where you could, but they won't really know it until they actually taste it. Can I explain an exercise that helped me? Absolutely. So I always thought that once you accept yourself in totality, that all you'd feel is bliss. It's that same thing about like when all your dreams come true, it's pure bliss. And when I realized it's not actually accepting yourself in totality is in totality and half your feelings are below the equanimous line and are going to be dark, sad, 
you know, despairing feelings, that was a huge revelation. So I, I created this exercise that's actually in our journey and it's called be the sky. And I, I go into this every time I'm triggered by my feelings and not able to allow or accept them. And I basically think of myself as the sky and the feelings as just the clouds that are always rolling by. So the sky doesn't judge the clouds. Like it, it doesn't one day say, Oh, you're kidding me. Right. You're dark today. Like you're raining, like get away. I don't need you today. I don't want you. The sky remains impassive behind the clouds, just patiently waiting and just experiencing everything. And then the clouds, they roll on by and the next day, the sky can be beautiful, clear blue, but the sky isn't like, yeah, I'm blue today. I'm going to cling to that. The sky is just blue. Then the next day, the clouds, clouds rage on by again. And it's kind of like, if we can try our hardest to be the sky and just see everything that's happening, all the emotions as just you know, little disturbances that are going to pass on by ultimately, and then come back again, we can learn to become more accepting, allowing and equanimous with everything that happens in our lives. I love that exercise. When, when you become or allow, when you're allowing yourself to be the emotion, whatever emotion could be any emotion that comes in the, the gamut, we just labeled them with words. It's just energy and you, people have the ability to sense at the slightest indication of what jealousy means versus irritation. We just labeled them differently, right? When you start to do that and it actually comes up in there, you you kind of mentioned like you, you become depression. Is it that you become depression or is it that you are actually allowing and accepting depression within the space of the sky or the space of consciousness, but who you really are is the sky. You're just allowing it to actually arise within it, but you're not actually taking the form of depression. You're just allowing it to experience itself through your radiance and through your consciousness in itself. Oh, I love that. Yes. It's the latter that you just said. Yeah. It's that we're everything. Every one of us is the deepest, darkest depression to the highest, most joyous ecstasy and everything in between. And I think when you see yourself as all of it and you realize that you can harness all of it and find meaning in everything, yeah. even the lowest of lows, because it's all about accepting the paradox and you, you know, you don't have one without the other and you can't enjoy or, or, or go get through one without the other. So it's about accepting the paradox that exists within. And I think only when we can do that can we truly live and accept others in their paradox as well. I love that. When you are entering into the business world and you have to make a thousand decisions today, today or tomorrow, right? And you are operating from a place of mindfulness or consciousness, whatever that is. And people get hung up on, on this kind of topic or this conversation because they're like, I'm trying to be surrendering, but I've got to hire somebody or fire somebody or deliver some bad news to somebody. So how do you walk people through that process of staying centered or clear and being able to have that kind of communication in the business world itself? Oh my gosh. It's so related. So I have such a strong intuitive sense and we all do. And I always have, I've always had, and we all do, you know, but my, maybe mine's louder because I'm so highly sensitive, but I've always had this gut intuitive voice that tells me what is right and what I should do. And the more I have accepted myself and opened up into hearing that voice and heeding its cry, the answers are so 
easy. They're right there. And it's really about when you can drop the societal convention of how we should act and, and what, you know, mode we should adhere to the voice gives you the answer every single time. And if it doesn't, it just means you're not ready to answer that question. So I listen to that voice in everything I do and every decision I make, it comes from that voice, no one else. And I don't let anyone else um, get in the way of that voice. How do people know the difference between the ego voice or the lower self voice in the voice that's more in line with nature? Well, I think it does involve the journey and, and, and really understanding the difference because most of us are so tethered to our egos. We don't know the difference. That is the only voice we hear. So it is about gaining the space because if your head and your heart are entwined, which mine were, there's no difference. Yes. It is the only voice, you know, and you're acting out of ego and you would say, I'm not acting out of ego. You're acting out of ego. Exactly. Like it involves again, stopping. If you really take the journey and so many pretend to take the journey. They don't ever really know how to stop. So they're not really taking the journey. They're spiritually bypassing (laughs) the work. Like then you, you know, you need to, and when people say to me, I don't need to take the journey. I've already taken the journey. I say to myself, like, like, you know, spiritual gurus do. I'm like, that person needs to take it even more than everyone else. Because, you know, if you are open to taking the journey and you've really taken it, you realize it never ends. Yeah. Like you could never say to someone, I've already taken the journey because I'm taking it every day and yes. it changes as I evolve, the journey evolves. Yes. So the point is um, you will know the difference when you start doing the work. It's really different. Yeah, it is. And it's actually the hardest thing you'll ever do in your entire life. I think what most people want is they, they hear enlightenment. They want their form of enlightenment that fits within their egoic structure. Yep, and that's really exactly. what, people, what people want until they actually, I always refer to anybody. It's like, if you really want to go down this journey, you understand it's going to be the most painful and the hardest thing you ever do in your entire life. But I promise you, it's the most important thing you'll ever do in your entire life. But people, yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. And, and, and the, the enlightened folks and all the philosophers they basically say anxiety is the precursor to growth. And the philosophers use the word angst, A-N-G-S-T. You know, it, it, you cannot transcend, you can't self-actualize, you can't positively disintegrate unless you go through the angst and it's pain because you have to face the dichotomy within yourself and accept everything in you that is distasteful. Yeah. I mean, it's literally, you're dying every day. I mean, it's, you have to die to be reborn. Right. Um, so what are the answers to those big questions that you've asked since such an early age and have you come closer to knowing or understanding those? And can you use words at all to kind of try to help orient people to understand that? I absolutely can. And actually my, my path took two, two, two divergent paths. You know, one was psychotherapy and that enabled me to accept myself in totality. So there were two parts of it. One was I denied myself and everything I was, and I needed to do that to become whole. So I did that. And, and that was, that's been awesome. And I find, you know, I'm still working at it, but I would say, I know who I am. I can say I'm a creative person, which is like the first time I've ever been able to own that. Um, but the meaning part of it was only solved through philosophy. Mm -hmm. And many say existential despair, this is really fascinating, is not a pathological condition. It's a spiritual philosophical condition. And the only way to solve it is not through traditional, you know, psychology, but through philosophy. And that's what I did. I went 
back to the beginning of time and truly like Socrates on because so many of these profound philosophers asked these questions long before I did and fell into such despair and didn't want to take their lives that they found philosophies, other philosophies to help them get through it. And reading how they really got through their existential nihilism um, was what helped me out. And it's basically a non-answer answer, Um, but it is the answer. You want to hear it? Yes. Okay. So uh, I really subscribe to two different philosophies. One is called absurdism that Albert Camus came up with to avoid becoming an existential nihilist and taking his life. And basically absurdism says, even though there is an inherent conflict between the lack of meaning of existence and our inherent need as humans to make meaning, we must accept that contradiction and that conflict and still rise above it by making meaning in the time we have here and embracing whatever life has to offer. So at the end, an an existentialism, which is another philosophy but related, basically said that, yes, we may stipulate that there is no meaning, and in the end, it may all be utterly for naught and absurd, but that still doesn't mean that man must, through awareness, free will, and personal responsibility, commit themselves to transcending their burdened head Mm. and engaging in the flow of life and making meaning in the time they have here. So in the end, it comes all the way down to personal commitment and responsibility and will to make meaning for yourself, despite the fact that there may be no meaning. I love that. And it's, it's not, it's, it's a non-answer, but an answer because somebody has to have the direct experience to actually know it and to experience what you're saying there as well too. One follow-up question to that. When you first started, you said it was a bifurcated process or two different processes. Did you think the first part and for people that are doing it is that you worked on the psyche level to kind of help get that stable, like spiritually stable enough. So then you could go work on the other part of that. Is that how that journey went for you? Yes. I needed to do that first because I think I needed that awareness of myself and the consciousness and to really understand everything I was feeling for the philosophy to make sense. And I didn't start, by the way, this philosophical path just started. I mean, I never thought of a philosopher my entire life. I never heard these names. It's been only one less than a year. And it's been like, when I'm reading them, no one can be near me. It's like, I'm watching a a Duke basketball game. I'm like, I'm like, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because their words, like I wrote verses that have the exact same words that these philosophers wrote 200 years ago. It's almost like when like minds, you know, we're, we're talking, we were in the exact same place and the exact same language we use. So I, I trusted them. They were like, I was like holding, you know, I was shoulder to shoulder with these philosophers, like walking the same terrifying path and, and knowing that their way out was also my own. And I also think, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that it's, it's, 
there's also one absolute truth. And so you are tapping into more of an absolute truth that was showing up and which is why it shows up over and over again and just in different variations and different, you yes. know, communication styles. But there is that one absolute truth. And so when you're screaming and saying, yes, this is amazing, I see it, it's because you, you, there's something inside of you that recognizes the truth and the words that are on the page. And the most crazy thing is I recognize that truth at age five, six, seven. Yeah, like yeah. what I write in my verses is the truth that only now I'm coming to realize. And, yeah. you know, I've read, read some of my verses to my therapist sobbing because I'm like, I knew the answer at age eight. Yeah. Yet I had to take the next 40 years to actually learn it. Like, how did I know that? <laughs> so I think I, I knew the answers. It's like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, you know? It's like she knew there was no place like home, but she had to go through that whole Oz journey to come back to herself and or the alchemist or any hero's journey. You know, it's like it was there all the time right here in my soul, yet I had to like basically almost kill myself to go back to myself. What does surrender mean to you? Wow. Surrender is the same thing for me as allow. Mm -hmm. Surrender means to allow everything I am and everything I feel just to flow through me. And I think now when I, now that I've, I've unblocked myself mm. um, and, and I, my, the, the metaphor I use for myself and I've always used is I'm an oak tree and sort of the roots are deep in my soul and the branches are like my hands and my face outstretched toward the heavens. And I think when I was not surrendered, the trunk of my tree was really dense and it was like so clogged up. And although I still created, it was by miracle because it was like, I was creating through one little like vein in that tree that went out my maybe one finger into the, the, the universe. But once I surrendered and I allowed everything that had been repressed down there to, to flow through me, it was like the inside of that trunk became completely hollowed out. And I was able to like flow in a way I had never flowed from the roots of my tree to the tips of my branches and the creativity and everything was just, was just um, unrepressible, I guess, or irrepressible, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, it was unable to be, to be stopped. I love that. I love that. Well, we're going to link, um, your book in our show notes, uh, lifelines, but also you have a, um, uh, uh, a site now, right. That's, that's helping people. Do you want to share a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yes, I would love to. So Doug and I knew that once I was able to really tap into who I was, that there were so many other people who were probably doing the same, you know, entrenched in darkness and needed a lifeline. So we committed to um, doing this really for the rest of our lives to taking the goodness from Melissa and Doug for 32 years and funneling it into a free ecosystem that would offer community and content to those um, suffering. And basically we do three things. We tell others that they are not alone. 
because having grown up as someone who believed she was utterly alone in exactly who she was, I didn't want anyone else to ever feel that no one would accept them for exactly who they were. So that's the first thing. And we really accept people exactly as they are. Um, secondly, we believe that every one of us has the ability to channel our darkness into light and find meaning. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, so many people reach out to us and they're like, we're, I'm in despair. I'm stuck. I can't get out. They can get out. They just need to dig through the layers that have submerged them or the water, whatever has submerged them yeah, yeah. and, and find their way to light. And we can sort of, show them how to do that. We can't do it for them, but we can show them. And then three, until we stop racing outside ourselves for the next, you know, quick fix or answer to our questions from the outside and resolve to make this journey inward to accept ourselves in totality, we will never rest in peace or find true fulfillment. And that journey is the centerpiece of our ecosystem and it's offered free and anybody really can take it. I love that. Where do people go? They go to lifelines.com. Awesome. And also I respond personally to anyone who emails me um, because that's really, you're not alone. And I want people to know that I'm reading their emails and answering them personally. So it's Melissa Bernstein at lifelines.com. And I love getting emails. Awesome. Well, Melissa, you are a beautiful soul. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey, not only with our audience, but for all the audience that's out there through your book, Lifelines. Um, and we're happy to, to have you on here. So thank you so much for being part of part of our show. Thank you, Adam, for all you do to help people be, be their most authentic selves in business and in life. Yes. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for hanging with Hallie and I today. Um, we are super excited to launch a four-part series about consciousness at work. So every Tuesday, it's going to drop in your inbox, not your mailbox, your inbox. And the four-part series is really going to address, uh, you know, how do you bring consciousness to work? I know it's the title of it, but like people want to know, Hallie, you know, how do you bring consciousness you know, when you're firing somebody, right? Or you're getting bad news delivered to you, right? So we're gonna really address these. In part one, we're gonna talk about how and why it's important to have consciousness at work, period. What does that even really mean? Part two is imposter syndrome, the fraud that can show up there, like thinking when you start to become a bigger leader, like what does that look like? And I don't even feel like I have a job, and then like, what is my worth, right? And then the ego and really letting go of that. Part three is conscious communication and decision-making. I mean, you're making decisions every single day, emails and communication. What does that look like? And then part four, we're going to wrap up with conscious leadership. And so if you're interested, Hallie, where do people go to sign up for this course? Yeah. So for more information, you can go to adamhergenrother.com slash consciousness at work, or make sure you're subscribed to our podcast, Business Meets Spirituality, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts so that every week you will be notified when the new episode drops.